0: Well, one of the fun things, I think, in a church is when you find friends, both locally and internationally, that, that you enjoy, that you respect, that you can ask to come and preach to the people that, as a pastor here, I love the most. And this guy would be one of these guys. I remember the first time I met Adam, I was asked to speak at the Acts 29 conference in Sydney about three years ago, or ish, wherever it was, two and a half years ago. And I first got to meet Adam. And three things quickly became apparent. First of of all, his hat. That was the first thing I noticed. I thought, I've never seen somebody preach in a hat before. And I spent most of the message wondering, did his mum drop him at some point? Or has he got no hair? And so that was was a little distracting. And then I saw you without the hat. And it was was comforting to know all is well under there. That was the first thing that struck me. But then two other things that caused me to think, yeah, I want this guy to, to speak to Sovereign Grace. Firstly was his courage. As I was hearing his story of planting in Pyrmont and how that was coming about, having to work full-time and then do it really part-time, at the time just married, now just married with a small baby as well, I just thought, I respect that. And Lord, anybody that's got that type of courage, it wins my heart. But it wasn't just the courage, it was the fact that the courage was linked so clearly with a passion for the gospel and seeing the gospel go forward in our city. And as so I was articulating and conversing with Adam, it was clear he loves the Lord, and he loves Piedmont and he wants to see the gospel go forward, and he has courage that is fueled by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and that's why I've asked him to preach to us today. So let's welcome him. Let's enjoy him.
1: Firstly, uh, I don't believe this is Sydney at all. I, I... I drove for like hours to get here. I I don't normally drive at all. I live in the city and there's public transport and things and getting out here just seemed unique. Um Yeah, so this is awkward. I've got I'm preaching on John sixteen. Oh, that's okay. I'm so kidding, I'm not I'm really not. It's different to what we discussed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. uh. It, it, John 16. I was having. I had to quick, flick through it. Then, of course, it's about. There's, it there's a, there's a lot in there about joy, and there's a lot in there about uh, what God has done and reasons for joy, why we have it, and uh, and the big idea, I think, uh, when you when you boil it all down, is there's this there's this declaration over us as, as believers, not guilty. Right? It's this incredibly relieving, kind of liberating idea that we're not guilty. That the God of the universe looks down on us and says not guilty. And and as I realized that, and as I, this is something that that really struck me, again, it struck me again, a couple of months ago, as I was, uh, as I was getting ready to preach something to my church, and and it really hit me really deeply that God looks at me and says, "Not guilty," and that's just so freeing. And I remember as I, as I was reading the passage, I can't remember what I was reading, but I just threw my Bible. Said that is too good, it is too exciting, it is too great that the God of the universe says to me, "You're not guilty." And it's totally liberated, totally set free, and that's an that's an exciting thing. It's an exciting thing to be involved in as we plant churches and we think about what it is. To, because you're still a church plant in a lot of ways. you I mean, you're pretty fresh. You know, you got the English accent. You call people governor. I don't know. <laughs> but uh, but you're a church plant. You know, and, and this it's an incredibly exciting thing to be a church plant. It's, and I look around you. Look, look at the number of people here compared to the average in Australia, the average church in Australia, church in Australia. Probably been there for a couple of hundred years, you know, uh, since the beginning of Australian clock ticking. Um, there's like 30 people. That's the average, national average. So it's kind of insane that you guys are, are this big. You're, you, I mean, you're, For all intents and purposes, this is bust out, throw down revival by comparison. And, and this would be exciting for you guys. And, and it's exciting for me to stand here because I remember when... They had just come out, I we think we just had dinner, and you're, oh, I don't know, there's a bunch of people meeting in some, you know, we're trying to think about where we're going to be, and we're hanging out in parks and things, and then there's all these people now uh, meeting together, and you've got things organized, there's things getting printed, we don't get anything printed, we don't, even, you know, we don't we don't have someone who'll do that for us, <laughs> you know, we don't need coffee machines, you've got stuff, you own things, it's amazing. Um, And so when I was, when I was thinking through what, is, what does it look like to plant a church, and why would I even do it anyway, I had to look at the state of the church in Australia, and, and it really it made me a little bit sad, because, because the words of Jesus in Matthew um, 9 are, he says to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few, right? So there's this revival almost waiting to happen. It's like the world is constantly pregnant with people going to be saved. And it's the workers that are few to go out and tell them the gospel, to tell them not guilty, to tell them that there's this declaration already over their lives that they are set free and redeemed. That's an incredible, incredible promise. And Why wouldn't we want to plant as many churches as possible and raise up as many leaders as possible to tell as many people as possible that reality? It's an exciting truth, right? And that's why we plant churches, and that's why we go out and pioneer things, and that's why I work really hard, full-time, Pay my own way, so I can plant a church and tell the people that truth. It's exciting, and and it it I don't know it gets me up in the morning. So does Max, actually. Max gets me up at four o'clock in the morning. Little jerk. I'll get him. Uh, anyway, has anyone ever heard the expression? I mean, of course you have. Hopefully you have. You're a church plant, and it's almost just thrown around um, like like crazy uh, in church planting. But the Acts to church. Anyone ever heard that expression? Let's, let's be an Acts 2 church. you know. It's either going to be in a church plan or a church that's really old and dying and trying to figure out how to do church again. They probably start throwing around that idea, the Acts 2 church. Um, and, uh, and, and people get really excited about that. And usually what they mean by that is the Acts 2, uh, 42 to 47 church, which says, Acts. 2, get your Bibles out because we're going to be jumping around a lot. Um, we're going to be doing Acts. We're going to be doing Genesis. We're going to be doing Ephesians, Matthew. Just, uh, just keep nimble. Keep nimble with your fingers. Um, Acts two forty two. Someone say, "Amen" or something when you're there. I don't know how you do it normally. Amen. We usually just silent. Silent. Right? This is cool. Yeah, we're you know we're young and in the city. People just start talking to the person next to them, so I know they're ready. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and to, and the fellowship. And to the breaking of bread and prayers, and awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. I mean, there's no wonder that people want this to be their church, right? <laughs> there's people who actually read the Bible for a start, so every pastor wants this. And then there's people being transformed by it, uh, which is amazing. And, and they're meeting together. And awe is coming upon every soul. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. This is kind of a big thing for us as we... As we went to plant the church, one of the big ideas was that if we have Christ in common, we have all things in common, right? There's nothing that divides us if we have this one thing that unites us, So they had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need, and day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having faith with all the people, and the Lord added to their number daily those that were being saved, all right, so the main reason I think people turn to this passage and they go, yeah, we want an Acts 2 church is really the last line. People are getting saved and the church is growing and so why wouldn't you want that in your church? Um, so it is, I mean, it's people are actually being saved and not, not, not every Sunday but every day. As they're meeting together in one another's homes, as they're breaking bread with one another, as they're uh, finding unity in Christ together, people are getting saved. There's something so astronomically attractive about that, that people are drawn to even your Bible studies and your home groups. It's not just coming to an event and hearing some, you know, some guy in a hat preach and go, oh yeah, let's, uh, amen, glory be, I'll, I'll believe that and get saved. No, they're coming to Bible studies, simple Bible studies, simple meals you're having together in your homes. Simple little get-togethers, making stuff together. Right? All those, just these gospel opportunities where people were getting saved here. Um, this is a group of people that's clearly more concerned about the Missio Dei, the mission of God, than they are about the Missio Eccles, the mission of the church, which is kind of really popular now in our culture. Is to come, What's the mission of your church? What's the goal of your church? What's, what's the desire of a church? What do you want to do? Or we make it even more sort of, Comical, almost. You know, what's your mission? What's your mission in life? You know, and uh, yeah, and this whole ministry is built around that idea, and books written about it. What's your personal? What's your personal vision? What's your personal mission? Right. But this is a church that's concerned about what God wants. This is a a church that's concerned primarily about what He's calling them to, not what they think is going to be, you know, the thing that gives them the the best feel good buzz and vibes. and so I think we uh, we get caught up in this utopia of Acts two forty two to forty seven, and we think yeah let's let's try and manufacture that, let's try and manufacture a culture and environment where that happens. But you really can't distinguish uh, uh, and separate out Acts two forty two to forty seven from Acts one six to eleven because the reason for Acts two forty two to forty seven is is Acts one six to eleven, and so they they had come together. They asked him. So Jesus obviously already crucified for their sins, already risen again and saying, guys, look, look at me, holds in hands, I'm eating fish and things. It's, it's an amazing time to be alive. Look at me, I'm Jesus. And walking around and they come to him, this is just before he ascends, and he says, they say to him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And they kind of miss it, don't they, already. He's, he's, uh, he, he said, I'm dying for sins, I'm you know, going to liberate the world and all this sort of stuff. And then they're like, ah, so are you going to be a political leader? You know, are, you going to, are you going to liberate Israel? Are you going to you know, kick Rome the heck out of, out of J-Town and we, we can you know, be our own sort of people again and get some blood sacrifice going on? It's going to be amazing. Uh, and, and he says, this is what he says to them. And he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem. And in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, all the way out to, where are we? Normanhurst, Normanhurst, the ends of the earth. (laughs) And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up. It's kind of crazy. He lifted up into a cloud and it took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as you would, I mean, this is sort of one of the the most hilarious parts of the Bible. There's lots of really funny parts in the Bible. People always want to, you know, argue, particularly in the city. Everyone's an atheist. It's kind of cool to be an atheist in the city. And everyone comes up and they want to argue first, you know, four, like, chunks, not even chapters, four little chunks of text in the Bible about God created the universe and all these different things. I'm saying, you guys are totally missing it. There's a talking donkey in the Bible. You want to fight with me? Pick a fight on a talking donkey. right, whatever. Anyway. Jesus ascends into heaven, taken into a cloud. And of course, they're standing there looking, and they're like, what the heck, man? Who sends into a cloud? Uh, and then this angel appears to, next to them and asks really the most obvious question anyone could ever have asked. It's almost redundant. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood uh, by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why are you looking into heaven? He's just, dude, just flowing. Right. Um, and, and he said, men, uh, men of Galilee, why are you looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come again the same way uh, you saw him go. So essentially, right, the, before this church starts, this idealistic, almost utopian Acts 2 church that, that, all these, that every church really throughout history ever since has wanted to try and build, a church in which people are being saved day by day, a church in which people are really caring for one another, which the gospel has transformed hearts to a point where people live in this amazing community, where people who just look at it and say, ah, the gospel, I see it now, I understand it now. Before any of that happens, there's this sending that, that Jesus says to them, wait for this spirit to come upon you, which we'll talk about. But intrinsically, right before anything else happens, he says, go out into the world. I'm sending you as my disciples. There's this message, there's this truth, there's this... What do they be messengers of? What they've witnessed. That's all we're messengers of. We're witnesses. Mission equals people meeting Jesus. That's the big idea. Mission equals people meeting Jesus and that is it, full stop. And Jesus sends us out as missionaries before he does anything else when he's going up into heaven. this The last little thing that he could have done, he could have given a whole bunch of different advice. could have given them a 10-step program, could have told them how to... You know, I don't know, nail life. This is how to win at life, guys. No, he says, go out on mission, and here's how you're going to do it, Judea, Samaria, and all the ends of the earth. Right, he sends them out. Acts 2, 1, continuing on. Uh, and then when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues of fire appeared and rested on each one of them. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began speaking in tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So the Spirit comes and indwells them. They have this sent mission, go out into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Knowing already what He had said in Matthew nine that there's there's, there's an abundance of people waiting to be saved. The harvest is plentiful, but you guys aren't going out. The workers are few. And then, so he sends them out on mission and fills them with the Holy Spirit, giving them the very power they need to, in order to be able to even preach the gospel effectively. Acts two fourteen and thirty six forty one. So it's sort of a jumble of verses, um, one after the other. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him Jesus both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And then, so what does Peter do throughout those passages? he gets up and he preaches the gospel boldly. There's this incredible proclamation of the gospel that leads to people being saved. So it's not just putting them on an event. right? It's not just being good neighbors. It's not just uh, you know, looking nicer than the people next to you. It's not being nicer. You know, What's it going to look like, you being a Christian in your workplace? No one types that good that anyone's looking at them and saying, ah, the gospel, I get it now. Right? They're filled with the Spirit and there's gospel preaching, there's proclamation. Um, this is the context that we need to read Acts 2, 42 to 47 in. Right? It's not just this weird idealistic community. It's a radically converted, radically saved, radically moved community that moves their life on mission. Sent out by Jesus. That's the starting point of Acts 2 in building this community. right? Acts 1 6 to 11 is vital for that. So as we went out to plant Whitehorse, I went out asking the question, what does it look like to plant a church in the city all week long? Not just to put on an event, not just put on something to draw people to, but something to send people out of into their community, right? so that we wouldn't just come to church as an attending idea, but we would be the church. right? This is a community in Acts 2 that is the church. They don't come to church. It wasn't an attending idea, it was a sent idea, it was an incarnational idea that they would go into all of the city all week long and incarnate the gospel there. Right, Christ comes from heaven to earth. It's called, anyone know what that's called? Where he comes from the god man to be the man man, the god man man. From heaven to earth. Anyone know what that's called theologically? I've already said it once. In- incarnation, thanks pastor. Incarnation, right? So, he incarnates from heaven to earth, which means he comes in the flesh, right? Like chili con carne is, is in the beef. Um, so he comes in the beef, in the flesh, from heaven to earth, and he, he, he embodies what, it is, what the kingdom of God is. And so he sends us out in the same way to incarnate from this kingdom that we're now ambassadors, that we now belong to, Right? And we, um, we embody the kingdom to the people he sent us to. So we incarnate all week long. And that's that's kind of the big idea is we're sent and compelled by the spirit. Um, so what I'm becoming increasingly excited about is what does it look like to be this this sort of church that, that at its foundational starting point isn't putting on an event, isn't putting on something. Oh, I think that's important. I do think meeting together is important. We don't throw that out. And I think meeting together and doing it well is important and celebrating because this is a rehearsal I don't know if you know that. This is a rehearsal for a greater celebration. One day we're going to stand before the throne of God and we're invited to this incredible wedding feast and we're going to have this epic celebration. There's going to be wine, there's going to be, I don't know, whatever the heck, people eat in heaven, right? And it's going to be really good. Uh, and so we, we, we almost rehearse that here. But then, but then we're, that's, not, that's, not, that's not the end game for us. Otherwise, we, just, no, we may as well just be raptured, get off the pew, go to heaven, right? May as well just go straight into the sky, the point is that, that we're still here with a mission and a purpose to incarnate this, this gospel message uh, and uh, and embody that to all people all week long. Uh, I'm kind of going to make two points. I've already made a whole bunch of points, but I haven't labeled them as points. So maybe I saw you taking notes. So maybe you can clarify that later, <laughs> the points that I've made. I don't know. But anyway, I've got two kind of, kind of broad points. Uh, one is we need to believe... Uh, believe really that that we are in the stirrings of a, of a revival and, and really i think every generation at every time is in the stirrings of a revival and it's not just a revival it's almost like a revolution an overthrowing of an old idea and the reinstituting of a new one right that that it, as as soon as jesus reminded us revealed to us that the, the harvest is plentiful and the workers are few we, we we should realize we're in the midst of, of an overthrowing here we're in the midst of this grand revival And the second point is, it's not because you are a great church that it's going to happen. It's not because you are independently phenomenal people that it's going to happen. It's not because you're incredibly gifted that it's going to happen. It's not because you look as good as Dave that it's going to happen with your super dry, you know, real super dry shirts on and your hipster shoes and whatnot. That's not what's going to do it, man. Um, Although, you know, keep doing it. Your wife loves it. Whatever. Um... And I think many of us pastors need to repent. Many of us leaders need to repent because we, we, we forget how exciting this is and we forget to take you on the journey of how incredibly exciting this is and what a privilege it is to be involved in what God is doing, right? stirring the hearts of people and saving people, telling them not guilty. It's an incredible privilege to be part of that. And we get so caught up in doing stuff, running a church, being a husband, running a business, doing all these different things, right? We get so caught up in that. uh, And that's what we teach people. We we rather than teach people to be missionaries in life all week long, embodying the gospel, incarnating as Christ came to us to incarnate the gospel, we get caught up with meetings and we get caught up with making sure things run right and the lighting's good and all the, all these different things and that's what we teach people so it's no wonder we end up with a sunday service and and then have to struggle for the rest of it um, so i i repent of that pretty much every week to my guys right because my life's busy and i teach them how to be busy not how to embody the gospel and so they need to remind me of that and they're always calling me out on it which is good it's good to call dave out on it when you see him doing it dave chill out, calm down, slow down, and remember. It's about people meeting Jesus. It's not about putting on a good show. It's not about running a nice event. It's not about having the best print material, the best website, about anything. All that's nice dressing. We get 70% of our people through a website, right, which is horrible. That's, that's, that's a horrible statistic. We should, be, we should be getting 100% of our people through r- these relational connections we're making with people in the city, sharing the gospel with them, loving them, embodying Christ to them. We've we got a website doing the work. That's a, that's a messy stat. And we get caught up in doing those sorts of things rather than building a good church. Um, Whitehorse, we started by preaching Acts. I don't know, where, you, where did you guys start on? Ephesians. Ephesians, Ephesians is a good book. We, we just did Ephesians, but Acts. That's where we started. Because it's kind of this... Um, I'm not saying it's better. It's just my opinion. Um... <laughs> Uh, I actually really like Ephesians. It's one of my favorite books in the whole Bible. I'm sorry. Uh, when we started, we, we started by, uh, we started the church and we started by doing Acts. Well, we actually started with Jonah, but when we got to the city, we started doing Acts. And, and as I started going through Acts, I, I started realizing this momentum that's building throughout the book. It, it's, it's, a, it's an incredibly exciting book and it is, it is actually, I think, as you read it, it's, I mean, it's fast paced, there's action, there's scene changes, there's dudes being killed, it's of a phenomenal book. It's like every dude's action hero sort of favorite, you know, stuff blows up. I don't know if stuff blows up, but stuff, people get killed for sure. People get stoned to death. There's screaming, there's crying, there's love stories in it. It's really good. Anyway, uh, as, I, as I started reading that, I started realizing something about church planting. It's much more like storming the Bastille right, than, than it is about Ned and Maud Flanders getting together for a bake sale. It's much more about a violent revolution and an overthrow than it is about uh, cold tea and ice vovos, which is typically what we make church to be. Turn our doilies into lamps, please, ladies. More than have doilies on our on our side tables. I don't know why, but I just like, I just don't like. I don't like doilies. Anyway, Jesus says, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been violently advancing, and violent men lay hold of it. This is this is the kingdom of God. This is the church that he's given to the world. This is how he describes it, that it's violently advancing and violent men lay hold of it or forcefully advancing and forceful men lay hold of it. Right? It's much more like a revolution, much more like the storming of the Bastille than it is a nice little get-together, a cozy little pew-warm session. Right? It's people's lives at stake. It's people's eternities at stake. Right? If we come to church on a Sunday and think it's anything less than eternity at stake, right, we've missed it. Not guilty, people need to hear it. Mission equals people meeting Jesus. Tell people who He is. Um, right at the beginning of Acts, Jesus is kicking around the countryside for forty days, kissing hands, shaking babies. and uh, I got that back to front on purpose. See what I did? Um, and uh, and his disciples come to him right just right before he shoots up into heaven, and they come to him and they said. Uh, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And what are they asking? And we kind of hit on it. What are they asking? Will it be political? Will you be, will you be the president? Will you be Che Guevara? That's really what they're asking him. Will, will you be this great... And there's some younger people over here. I should probably address this side, the older people. Will you be Che Guevara? Right. He's the guy on the t-shirt with the beret and a little star. Did some stuff in Cuba. Um, and what does he do what does he say to them does he say idiots come on guys that's not what this is about is that what what he says he doesn't correct them at all actually which I found the most surprising thing and actually a really exciting thing about this passage he doesn't correct them and say you morons you missed it come on get on the get on the J J bus and let's you know let's sing kumbaya and wait for eternity it's not what he says he says wait wait they say are you going to overthrow Rome he says wait wait until power comes from on high, then go into Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria and all the ends of the earth. It's exactly what he was plotting. He was plotting the exact thing that they wanted, but not in the way that they wanted it. He was plotting the overthrow of Rome. He was plotting the overthrow of all kinds of kingdoms and, and dominions. He was over, over, plotting the overthrow of all kinds of spiritual bondages that people are in. Right? And, and so he's, he's more like this revolutionary, Che Guevara, than he is perhaps like I don't know, like anything else we paint him up to be, like a sissy Jesus with long hair, with lambs, right? He is a revolutionary, and it's exactly what he was planning, and that's what church planning is. Much more like a revolutionary. Much more like Matthew 11:12, which we read earlier. Um, the forcefully advancing, and forceful men lay hold of it. Uh, if the Gospel of Luke is a manifesto, the Book of Acts is, is the art of war, One of my favorite quotes um, is by Fidel Castro, Castro, who was in uh, cahoots with Che Guevara when they overthrew Cuba. This is a little history lesson. Um, And he said, after the revolution, I began revolution with 82 men. If I had to do it again, I would do it with 10 or 15 men, absolute faith and a plan. It does not matter how small you are if you have absolute faith and a plan. (laughs) Imagine if we got that. Imagine if we got that now in our Bible studies, because you kind of think it has to be the big church that does it. That's, what has to, that's what's going to reach my friends, if I bring them along to that. Um, maybe. Right? Um, if only we were as big as Hillsong. That's when we'd really see conversions coming in. Right? Yeah, maybe. But that's, that's, not what, that's not what Che says. <laughs> that's not what Fidel says. I mean, they're not, you know, they're not biblical characters, obviously. Um, but it's also not what Jesus says. What did he do? Did he amass hundreds of thousands and then said, Okay, now we've got this great army, this great cloud of witnesses, now we're gonna go and share the gospel, now we're gonna overthrow Rome. Now he gets twelve guys, disenfranchised dock workers, guys that are just trod down, beat up, fishermen, nobodies. Right? And he says, With these guys, I'm gonna change the world. Right? With this church, he's gonna change the world, with this group of people that you may think, Oh man, who are we? you've got the spirit of the living God, is what he's trying to tell you. He's got this incredible plan, absolute faith and a plan. That's what we're called to. I mean, Castro had it right. He should have been a church planner. He gets it better than we do. Um, The last thing they talk about is a revolution, and it was going to be far more significant than they ever thought it could be. In the mid-18th century, both France and Britain... Are in the uh, the midst of incredible social upheaval with the Industrial Revolution just about to just about to spark really what's going to be just a, a bloody mess in Europe uh, and, and in France the powder keg explodes and we get Les Misérables the stage play musical um, as the consequence if you like just incredible bloodshed you know, I mean it's funny but uh, you know, the musical bit. Really, it, it exploded and there was, uh, there, was, there was blood and there was mess and there was upheaval and it was, uh, it was really quite a tragic thing. Then you have in Britain, exact same social pressure, exact same problems uh, starting to boil over. I mean, as you look around the climate of the world today, I mean, this is you know, Arab Spring and all these different things, incredible social upheaval. The, the, I mean, really what's, what we're witnessing is the decline of the US um, and, and uh, the rise of China right? in, in this generation. We'll probably see that. We're seeing a great superpower fall and we're seeing great, great economies fall and great businesses fall and banks that we didn't think could ever, they were impenetrable and now owned by the government. <laughs> you know, like these just incredible times, great times of social upheaval, really not that dissimilar from the 18th century. And, and so what you had in France in, in, the, in the brink of, uh, of, of the social breakdown with the Industrial Revolution, France blew up. Uh, but England, something different happened didn't it, England? Um, in England, you had, uh, you had what's now known as the Great Awakening. Right? No one's really sure about how many people uh, really came to Christ, but roughly one-fifth of the whole British Isle becomes Christian. Right? Almost totally rejected Christianity as an idea, and now one-fifth radically saved. And of course, out of that, you get guys like uh, the, um, the, the Wesley brothers, Right, uh, John Wesley and Charles Wesley start the Methodist movement. You get just um, you get the abolition of slavery. You you get uh, all these incredible things happen throughout history. You get uh, um, increased working conditions. No longer child children working in mines. The whole social norms are rad- radically uprooted. Why? <laughs> because the gospel was preached. Because people believed. Because there was a faithful few left in England who believed that that Christ was the only thing really that could transform the world, and they preached it when it seemed ridiculous uh, in this country where what two point four percent Protestant Christian uh, where I come from in Pimont is less than half a percent Protestant Christianity in uh, it i mean we're in, in terms of in terms of dire straits we're in it I mean we're in un, unnamed stream without paddle you know. Uh, that's, that's where we sit now in the state of Christianity. And I think it's an incredibly exciting time to be a church plant for that reason. Right? What the world needs, what the world needs is the cross, what the world needs is the gospel, what the world needs is a declaration over it, not guilty. That's an exciting thing to be part of. And it's not just us saying it, actually. At the highest levels of scholarship, what the world, what, the, what the world is saying now not Christians this isn't we're not talking more college theologians, we're talking Oxford, we're talking Cambridge, we're talking Yale. At the highest levels of scholarship, people are saying really the only thing that can turn around the world from the state that it's in and redeem it from the state that it's in is is another great awakening All right so at the highest levels of secular scholarship they're saying that yet at the church we, we act like we're beat up, downtrodden generally I mean maybe not you guys, right? but generally the church acts like this is beaten up and downtrodden. And the greatest thing we could expect is maybe one or two of our friends maybe come to Christ. Right? Well, God, God's called it. Great harvest. Few workers. I want to call you guys out today to be, to be the harvesters that he's, that he's put in your city, to be the harvesters that He's... He said, these are the guys. You are the people. You are the people that He's called to Himself to go out and share this gospel and declare it boldly. So we would see that sort of great awakening. We would see that sort of bust-out, throw-down revival in this city. I believe it can happen, not because I'm incredible, but because he is. Because the gospel is that good. It saved my heart, and I was hard. I believe it can save my friends, and I believe it can save yours. By the third century, 2,000 years ago, it's an undisputable fact that we saw another one of these great awakenings. People dispute the Bible all the time, the authorship and the authenticity and all that sort of stuff. But pretty much everyone agrees, almost 100% across the board, that Dr. Luke wrote the book of Acts. And he was an eyewitness to actual events. And he saw the unfolding of the reality of the first century church. And within, within less than three centuries, two centuries almost, in fact, the whole of the Roman Empire caught up in Caesar worship and all kinds of other idolatry. The whole of the Roman Empire is declared Christian. Right? This downtrodden group of people, totally outcast, twelve dock workers, i mean prostitutes, the most unlikely group of people that you would you ever would have expected to start any sort of revolution or revival not what what have you got here? Probably eighty people, ninety people, hundred people. I mean you guys are killing it compared to the disciples, quite frankly you got twelve dudes expecting to be executed in fact. Over the course of those 300 years, the, the Roman Empire would try to do exactly that, stamp them out, kill them off, boil them in oil, throw, the, throw them to lions, draw and quarter them. Right? It, was, it was not a good day to be a Christian. You wouldn't be going up and going, hey, reasons for hope and joy, uh, three-point sermon. Right? You'd be going, this is the truth of the gospel, not guilty, now go out, you're probably going to be killed for it. Who wants to be a believer? Right? And yet, and yet, the gospel was that good. The truth of the message was that good. The hope that that birthed in people was that good. And it wasn't tricks and games and nice message titles. It was just the reality of a Christ crucified for our sins. That God himself came into human history and was tortured, punished, rejected, broken from the Father, rejected by him so that we could be brought near. Utterly cast out by God the Father, Christ was for our sakes so that we could be called children it 's an incredible message it 's an incredible message. How might this play out today? if we were really believe this, if we were really go out and really go out of here today and not just go well wow, that was that 's a nice idea. It was great that it happened in the first century and it 's great that it's happened in every probably every century ever since uh, but that's not going to happen now. What if we really believe that it would? What if we really believed the gospel was good enough to save that father of yours that doesn't believe, that friend of yours that's like just a hardcore atheist? I mean, they've read every Dawkins book, you know? They've probably got great arguments. Um, except Dawkins doesn't have great arguments. Someone else, Hitchens. He's kind of interesting. Whatever. Anyway, so someone interest, someone who's good at arguing uh, Christianity. Imagine if, if the gospel was good enough to penetrate their hearts and you, just, you didn't just think, oh, wow, that would be a good idea, but you really believed it at the core of your being. You didn't just have knowledge of who God was, but you have an intrinsic belief in your heart that the gospel is power enough to sa- powerful enough to save them. Imagine if we walked out of here and we believed that. I think it might play out like this. Genesis 1, 27 to 28. God created man in his own image... In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. If you want to know what mission looks like, the mandate hasn't changed since Genesis 1. How easy is that? It's this, this one message over and over and over again. This is how I will reach people. This is how I will reach people. This is how I will reach people. I will create a body of people in my own image and I will send them out into the world to bear image to the world of, of my glory. God creates them in His own image and sends them out so that what? The whole world would glorify Him. So every tree, every plant, every animal, every piece of creation will be able to point to his people who he's created in his image and say, ah, I get it now. I understand the gospel now because I've met the image of God. You will never meet another person in your city. You'll never meet another neighbor. You'll never meet anybody, right, who, who isn't an image bearer. Will you love that image? Will you cherish that image? Will you nurture that image? And will you try to reveal that image as God's image? Do we love our neighbors enough to make the sort of sacrifices that we need to do that? I tell my guys... We have 21 meals a week, right? We eat three meals a day, seven days a week. How many of them are you prepared to make a sacrifice on to share the gospel with someone? What would, it, what would it, what, How many of them would you sacrifice to see your family saved? Because uh, usually we, we make a sacrifice of zero. It just, I mean, just in a simple thing like that. How many of us could open our homes, our lives, uh, to share the gospel with someone? Uh, would we dare to believe that we won't be made to look like fools when we do it? Um, he repeats this in Ephesians. In Ephesians uh, 1, he starts out by talking about how all things are brought together and put under Christ or on his predestined people and it's all great things for a church named Sovereign Grace. It was about as Calvinistic as you can get, I think. Sovereign and grace together. It's like, hey, let's celebrate Calvinism. Whatever. I'm into that. Um, Ephesians 1, 22, and he, God, put all things under his feet, talking about Jesus, and gave him as the head over all things to the church which is his body, so we are his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. How will we, the church, fill all in all as his body? In the same way that Genesis 1 uh, was going to fill the world with his glory. Right? We're made as his image bearers who will go out and bear image to his glory out in the world. Same mandate to the church as he had to Adam and Eve, right? uh, that we're now disciples, that we're now family. I mean, I've heard this about a dozen times in this service already. that we are a family of of believers called to him, disciples, missionaries, ambassadors sent out with this incredible gospel message, not guilty, not guilty. Um, It's not about a geography. Paul paints this picture of the church not primarily as a gathering, but but as a body uh, in one location in geography, but a body of people who he's sending out. Um, Acts 17 says that God has appointed the times and the boundaries in which you exist, Right, so the neighbors you have aren't a coincidence. The friends you have aren't a coincidence. The job you have isn't a coincidence. Right? That God has appointed you to be an image-bearer in those places. Will you bear image to Him there, or will you bear image to yourself? Will you bear image to Him as God created there, or will you bear image to some other God that you like to worship? Right, he's appointed the times and the places in which you live, Acts 17, to be the church in a city all week long, to fill it with His glory. Um, Paul says, "Whatever you eat or drink, do it for His glory." So again, you know how we use our lives, our time, our energy, our resources uh, to do that. Matthew 28:19. Anyone who's ever been in the church, we're on the homeward stretch, by the way. Um, so if anyone needs to stretch their legs or stretch out their arms. I don't know. I don't know how long I've been going. Probably too long. However, I'm going to keep going because I got more points. Matthew 28:19 says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I think it's a reasonable translation. Uh, go out into all the world, make disciples, baptizing them in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. An equally valid translation in the Greek, and it's the one that the, uh, that the ISV does, not the ESV. Uh, I, I usually use the ESV. Uh, but the ISV, International Standard Version, as you go, make disciples. In the going about of your daily life, Make disciples. It says, you're going to the gym, take someone with you, disciple them. And are we, are we going to disciple those that aren't yet family as though they were? That's what being a missionary looks like. Are we going to start to make disciples before they've even believed? Really, that's, isn't that what the disciples were? They were just some guys, some jacked up guys who were you know killing calves and shedding blood. Now all of a sudden, they're, they're these dudes who were falling around Jesus. They're disciples. They didn't even know who he was. They had no inkling of who he was. Yet He calls them disciples. So we make disciples of everybody of something and they follow us and they listen to us and we, are we preaching the gospel to them or are we preaching something else? Not guilty. Right, That's the thing that we should be at the masthead of everything we do and how we live. If we can start to envision a people who start to see everything they do as an expression not only of the good news of God but of the glory of God in every form, in every way, in every place. Right. That should really be what's driving the question, what does it look like to be a church in a city all week long? What does it look like to be a church in a city in every area, not just on a Sunday, in every facet of life, not just in events? I'm convinced that the easiest thing we do as Christians is put on a Sunday service or, or put on some other event during the week. It's very easy to write a message comparatively. It's very easy to get a band together. It's very easy to rent a hall. And it's very easy to put out some flyers and attract some people. This is very easy compared to getting you guys to live missionally all week long in, in every part of your life. All right, this, is, this is going to be the thing that drives him bald and keeps me bald. This is why I wear the hat. Not really. I just want to protect you from the shine. Um, this is the thing that r- really drives pastors and it drives them mental. It's trying to get you guys out to be missional all week long, not just come to an event. Very easy to, to control a couple of hours here and there, but very hard to get us to go out and actually believe that there's a revival out there waiting for, waiting for harvesters. Um, Second to last point, God did not pick the boldest or the bravest, but he picked you and me. Uh, you would be hard-pressed in Scripture to find an instance where God picks someone who's just the epic Adonis of all that is amazing. He just doesn't do it. He never did it. And he, if you look around the room and if you're honest with yourself, he didn't do it with you either. Which is probably why most of you are like don't go on mission anyway. You probably have some sort of fear. You probably have some sort of anxiety about it. What would people think of me if I went and told them? You know, not guilty. I just imagine you guys walking to your workplaces on Monday. Hey, guys, great news. Not guilty. And everyone just going silent. Uh, if you didn't have a fear of it before, now you do. Deuteronomy 7, God says, "'For you are, a, you are a people holy to the Lord your God. "'The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people "'for his treasured possession "'out of all the people on the face of the earth. "'It was not because you were more in number.'" It was not because uh, uh, more in number than any other people the Lord had set his love on you or chose you. That you were the fewest of all the people. He goes on to say that you were the weakest. Right? You were the fewest. You were the weakest. You were the least amazing. Is this a positive message? You feel really upbeat now. This is why God chose you. Uh, he, he loves you because he loves you. That's the point. He didn't choose you because you were able to do good acts for him. He didn't choose you because you were a phenomenal speaker or orator. He didn't choose you because you, you could nail... like. Uh, you know, two ways to live when you're standing in front of your work colleagues. Right? That's not why he chose you and it's not why he continues to put his love on you. He loves you because he loves you. That's it. It's, it's his decision. It's his decree and he's proved it through Christ. Uh, every great Bible story centers on idiots right, doing incredible things. Jonah goes into Nineveh and he preaches the worst message in the history of the world. Eight words, right? And the eight, well, in the Hebrew, I think it's actually five words. It's five words, not yet 40 days and you'll be destroyed. Bust out revival, the whole city saved. It's an amazing story, which gives me hope in my (laughs) preaching, because even in that, God will will save people. On the other flip side of that, Noah preaches for 120 years. For all we know, it's an epic message. God's going to destroy the whole world. Look at my ark, One, one in, you know? um and eight people get saved right? so it's, it's not the effectiveness of your ministry don't worry about that it's it's not because if you could say wow look how amazing i am you would credit to yourself and it wouldn't be god's glory it'd be yours right? so it's not because you're amazing it's because he is it's not because you're amazing it's because the gospel is are you trusting in your abilities or are you're trusting in his ability to save was it your good works that saved you i don't think it was it was all of christ um Every great Christian revival has three elements, and this is the end. Um, every, every great Christian revival in history, and this one will be no different. Number one, the centrality of Christ. Christ is absolutely fundamental. He is absolutely central to it. Uh, right? if, if He isn't preached, if He isn't glorified, uh, there won't be a revival. It'll be some sort of show. It'll be ugly. Um, The Bible says in John 11, and it's written in red, so it's really important, that when Christ is lifted up, He will draw all men to Himself. And when Christ is lifted up, what do we preach and how do we preach it? How vigorously do we preach it? Do we preach Sunday service? Come along to my Sunday service. It's amazing. Do we preach Bible study? Come along to my Bible study. It's amazing. Or are all of us ministers? Are all of us ministers of reconciliation? Isn't that what we're called to be? All of us bear this message. All of us bear this image. Every single one of us, not guilty. It should be declared in our lives, not in just how we preach, but how we live. Um, second, a great outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Second ingredient of, the great, of every great reformation was to believe uh, that the Holy Spirit is at work in our lives and in our hearts. J.C. Ryle in the 1800s, part of, the, uh, and part of that um, a great awakening, he had this ministry. I, I'm looking around the room, what's your stats on men and women? You have a lot of women's programs, so I'm assuming you have a lot of women because I know what women are. Right. <laughs> the church in Sydney is about seventy percent female. Uh, it's seventy percent women. The average Christian in Sydney is a forty five year old woman with two kids working a full- time job. Uh, it's about seventy percent female and uh but so it's it's kind of unique to hear of a story in history where it was the men that were getting saved throw down the men it was it was it 1800s was just like that and jc ryle's ministry was almost exclusively you you think oh yeah but you know i got blue collar friends you know i don't have bourgeois university educated city dweller friends who are gonna you know who think about things i've got blue collar friends you know he's J.C. Rowell's ministry was exclusively, almost exclusively to blue-collar workers. And he went to the coal mines and he would preach the gospel. Could you imagine going to coal mines? People with pickaxes, black dust on them. You know, it's uh, it's a scene out of, what's that movie with the the Hunger Games? You know, you go to the Hunger Games and you start preaching the gospel. Uh, Start saying, you know, walk into the mines, hey guys, not guilty. There's this guy, Jesus Christ, died for your sins. He was whipped, scourged, beaten, crucified on the cross so that all of your sin and shame could be removed. Phenomenal story, do you believe? Right, and the tears wept down their faces. It was called, it was called the, uh, the, the ministry of white streaks or the ministry of white eyes because there were black faces with white streaks coming out of every mine in England as the gospel was preached. And this is what he says. Pray daily for the great outpouring of the Spirit on the church and on the world. This is the great need of the day. It is the thing that we need far more than money, machinery and men. The great company of preachers in Christendom is far greater than it was in the day of Paul, but the actual spiritual work done in the earth in proportion to the means used is undoubtedly far less. We need more of the presence of the Holy Spirit, more in the pulpit, more in the congregation, more in the pastoral visit, and more in the school. Where he is, there will be life, health, growth, and fullness. Where he is not, all will be dead, tame, formal, sleepy, and cold. Then let everyone who desires to see the increase of pure and undefiled religion pray daily for more of his presence, more of the presence of the Holy Spirit in every branch of the visible church of Christ. We need more of the the Spirit in this church. We need more of the Spirit in our lives daily. We need him to be at work within us and out through us. And the last point, number three, pray, pray, pray. (laughs) Um, It's all of his work. It's all of his grace. It's all of His glory. We need to pray, pray, pray daily for His work to be done and His will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that's what probably a good point for us to pray now together. Why don't we do that? Lord God, I pray for this city. I pray for this area. I pray for this region of Sydney, Lord, that we would see a great outpouring of Your Spirit in this area. Lord, I pray that there would be a bust out, throw down revival where people would be filling churches. As I prayed for uh, the city earlier, as I was standing with um, with good men, um, I pray, Lord, that, that you would fill every church around me to overflowing, and out of the out of the overflow of those churches, you would fill mine also. Lord, I pray that we would have that sort of humility as we approach preaching the gospel. That we would know that it's not our work, it's not because we're nailing it, it's not because we're good, it's not because we're the strongest, it's not because we have the greatest music, it's not because we have the greatest setup, it's not because we have the greatest preacher, it's because we have the greatest king and lord in Christ. It's not because we've we've done great things that you will save our friends, but because we have a God who did great things through Christ. Lord, I pray that we would celebrate the greatest work ever done daily together. I pray, Lord, that we would embody the greatest work ever done daily in our workplaces, around our friends. I pray, Lord, that we would preach and proclaim the message, every one of us, not just Dave, not guilty, that we're set free, redeemed, restored, we're put into a loving relationship with God, that he now accepts us and not rejects us. Lord, I pray that we would feel the liberty of that, that our shame would be removed and our hope restored. And I pray, Lord, that we would see a great outpouring of your spirit. And we would see a revival amongst our friends and our family and their friends and their family. Lord, and generations and generations from now would look back on this day and this church plant and the church plants that are happening around this city and they would say like no other time in history, Sydney was touched and blessed by the hand of God. Lord, I pray that we wouldn't just think that's a nice thing to say, but I would actually believe it in the core of our being that you are able to do all things. Lord, I pray this in Jesus' name.